the Knowledge Sessions. Okay, welcome everybody. Here we are in the basement room of Belgravi House, the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons um, in London. Uh, today we've got a very, very interesting topic, um, and the soundbite across it is, what if the dog could speak? Um, and this uh, discussion revolves around um, how we include patient values, if at all, uh, in what we do as clinicians in terms of decision making. This comes off the back of a, a really interesting uh, podcast and presentation that David Mills did, uh, which was entitled, Putting the Horse Before the Cart, the Ethical Case for Patient Values in Evidence-Based uh, Veterinary Medicine. Um, and this embraces evidence-based veterinary medicine ethics and animal welfare in, in a, a very real way. Before I do a sort of preemptive uh, preamble, um, I'd like to introduce you to the six members of the panel who are going to take part in the discussion this afternoon. Um, just to include myself, I'm the chairman. My name is Professor Peter Cockcroft. Um, I work at the UVET School at the University of Surrey. Um, I need to declare my interest immediately, which is uh, I'm Editor-in-Chief of Veterinary Evidence. Um, I've also got a keen interest in evidence-based veterinary medicine, having produced uh, a book across evidence-based veterinary medicine in 2003, um, and a follow-on book, which was uh, Handbook of Clinical Research. Um, so we'll just go around the table. Uh, James, if I can ask you first to introduce yourself. Hello, I'm James uh, from the RSPCA. Hello, I'm Carol Gray. I'm currently doing a PhD on informed consent to the treatment of animals. And in a past life, I've been a small animal veterinary surgeon and also a teacher of veterinary communication skills. I'm Siobhan Mullen from Bristol Vet School. I um, teach veterinary ethics to the undergraduates there and uh, various other people who come to us. And I've also recently co-written a book called Veterinary Ethics, Navigating Tough Cases, and um, there's some really nice scenarios in there about evidence-based veterinary medicine which have been responded to by experts in the field. Uh, I'm David Mills, uh, currently a practicing vet at PDSA of the Thames Mead, and my uh, other interest is the PhD in the ethics and epistemology of evidence-based veterinary medicine. And as was said before, I was the author of the presentation uh, which led to this book. Hello, uh, I'm Françoise Wimmersfelder. I'm a professor of animal welfare and qualitative science at the Animal and Veterinary Science Department at Scotland's Rural College in Edinburgh. Uh, I'm a biologist by training and um, my main interest has been animal sentience and how we can understand the animal's perspective. And this has led to development and a lot of research on qualitative behaviour assessment that tries to look at, at the subtle expressivity that animals, you know, that we can see coming from, from animals, the way they behave and what that tells us about their welfare and and I've spent, we've spent a, a large proportion of time providing evidence and validating that that can be a, a valid scientific methodology and it's not just anthropomorphic projection. Okay, thanks very much everybody. I'm just going to try and lay the landscape a little bit, it might feel a little bit fragmented, but I just want to throw a few things into the fire just to start the conversation. And I've lifted most of these from David's paper, um, but it's interesting that Romeo and Rowling, uh, a quote from them is that a veterinarian has an ethical obligation to provide treatment for which there is good evidence of effectiveness. 
Uh, and the Royal College 2013 also makes a statement, uh, in order to be considered fit for practice, veterinary practitioners hold the responsibility to ground their decisions on sound, objective and up-to-date um, evidence. Rowling in 2006 also said veterinarians have a duty to clients, they've got a duty to their profession, they have a duty to society, they have a duty to themselves, and they've got a duty uh, to animals. And so you can already see we're going to be moving to areas that involve sentience and ethics and morals and, and philosophy. So it's a very broad subject that we've got to address uh, this afternoon. I guess one thing I would just like to uh, have a few words across is evidence-based veterinary medicine itself. Um, it, it means different things <clears throat> to different people in my view. Um, and obviously it arose from evidence-based medicine. And they make it very clear that it includes patient values, clinical skills, and very explicit methods of systematic approach to literature to define very clearly uh, the confidence we have in the evidence provided by those primary papers. <clears throat> in veterinary science, <clears throat> there are a, a number of quotes that uh, different people have made, different organisations have made. For instance, the Centre of Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine in Nottingham says, the use of best relevant evidence in conjunction with clinical expertise to make the best possible decision about a veterinary patient, the circumstance of each patient and the circumstances and values of the owner and carer must also be considered when making an evidence-based decision. Um, and as you can see, compared to the human, there is no mention there of patient values, not direct mention. The other quote I'll give you is, from our book, we, we took a very constrained view of evidence-based veterinary medicine. We saw it as part and parcel of what we do, perhaps not the massive over arching that, that some people feel arches hope everything we do in the profession. And we took the view that evidence-based veterinary medicine is the use of current best evidence in making clinical decisions. And we were quite clear that um, really the focus was on primary scientific literature. Um, so you can see there's, there's, there's really quite a, a, wide, a wide difference. And I just wanted to point out there are differences about what we mean in evidence-based uh, veterinary medicine. Um, and David in his paper came up with this concept of values-based medicine with evidence. And that, that has an appeal to me, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but it is a shift in putting evidence-based in context of patient values. Okay, that's, that's my preamble. Um, what I'd like to do is, is just start off with some, uh, a very straightforward statement just to, just to get some discussion going. And I'm, I'm just going to ask the panel, who should have the final say in potential treatment, the vet, the owner, um, or the animal? I'm just looking around the panel, if anybody actually has got a strong feeling across this, maybe we should let David talk to this, seeing as he was the author of the paper to start with. Yeah, I think, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult question to answer. What we see is is a kind of triangulation of vet, animal, and owner, and that, in its in its most common form, uh, is what the clinical scenario generally is. To put a different kind of slant on that, um, something that I've been looking at through my thesis is to is to reduce that down um, to what is the most basic kind of interaction is it between the vet and the animal. So such as what you would see with a stray animal or even more so with wildlife where there isn't any potential owner or any other person that would have necessarily a say on that animal's treatment. And so I think 
if we can get if we can get that right, um, then it makes our interaction and decision making with the owner far easier. Um, and this is where potentially knowledge from evidence based medicine has a has a really powerful role to play into showing us what is the best treatment and what other treatments are available and how they compare. And so, I think any interaction should be led uh, by the vet, by the veterinary surgeon um, primarily, given their greater knowledge and understanding. Um, but what we have to remember is, if there is an owner involved, the most of the treatment and most of the therapy beyond what we do will be will be given by the owner. And so, without consent or buy-in from them, then um, the whole thing becomes fairly pointless. Okay, any further comments across that channel? I'd like to come in here because um, I feel very strongly that where there's a, a choice of treatments that perhaps have similar effects on welfare, it should be the owner that makes the decision because it's the owner that's going to pay. Therefore, if we have ethically equal treatments, then the vet can use evidence-based medicine to give the information to the owner so that they can make the best decision for them in their individual situation. I think it's only if an owner is requesting unethical treatment that a vet should step in and be advocate for the animal. But I think where there are ethically equivalent, and we can argue about how we determine that treatment, then it has to be the owner that makes the decision because it's the owner that's going to pay for it. It's the owner that's going to be responsible for the, the outcome and for giving the care. So we have to give the client autonomy when it's appropriate to do so. Siobhan, you're hesitating. Go on, you carry on. <laughs> well, I, I, I really agree with Carol on that. I think, you know, the, the, um, yeah, the, the, you know, the owner clearly bears most of the responsibility for their own animal. But of course, working with, with the um, working with the vet who brings their knowledge and evidence based information and so on to that um, decision, and also the owner then brings their knowledge of their individual animal, also representing that this very specific um, interests of that actual animal um, in, into the equation. I, I was really interested in, in what you said, David, about. Like, let's practice on this ownerless mm. scenario, let's say. Yeah. And is that why? Why was that? I, I don't. Is it? I, I just think that uh, that kind of highlights. If we take that as a kind of thought experiment, it, it shows us where the the power of evidence based medicine can come in. In that, when we're in terms of making a clinical decision, it kind of reduces the interaction down to veterinary surgeon treating an animal the best way possible potentially you know if we just take financial constraints out of that but from a epistemological perspective then we can we should be able to by using every space medicine say this animal has this disease this is the best way to treat it and so obviously the nature of a clinical encounter is what is more complicated in that there will be other influences and other circumstances will may will possibly attenuate that approach in some way but if we had to look purely from a medical therapy perspective then that would that would be the starting point of any kind of I suppose 
philosophical, epistemological approach to disease. Okay, but but don't you think that in in each any one of those situations that there's not always a clear no. one one solution? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, because the, ev- the evidence, well, the evidence will tell you something about you know I don't know rates of fracture repair or this type of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's not telling you those other things that a, a have to come in about the individual animal, but b mm. each individual veterinary surgeon's own autonomy then about yeah. what they value. Yeah, and what they're capable of, and that is that's one of the natural weaknesses of evidence-based medicine, and that it will is is used and misused in a way where the evidence doesn't speak for itself. The evidence only tells you what it tells you. Um, and it's how you apply that to the clinical scenario, which is possibly the most difficult and most important part of it. Um, but it, the evidence doesn't tell you what to do. It provides justification for any particular intervention that you may choose. Um, but it informs that decision, doesn't it? It provides... The yeah, amount of if, evidence, if whether it's strong or whether it's weak, does inform that clinical yeah, decision. And if, it, if, you if, may carry on. It may not drive it completely, but it certainly... It shouldn't be undervalued. Yes, uh, we we need justification for what we do. Um, whether that whether that is can be equated to fitness to practice, as the Royal College statement says, I'm not entirely comfortable with that. But in terms of justifying what we do, yes, it has a role. I think we'll move on from that because we've got a lot of people around these table who are quite interested in this animal patient value space. And in your paper, David, I think you said, "Do they exist? Do they matter?" Um, and one of the questions on my list is, is to kind of look at patient patient values. Um, you know, what, what are they? What do we mean by patient values? Are animals sentient? You know, let, let's let's kind of move into into that space a little bit um, and see where that takes us. Anybody want to start off by perhaps having a look at what animal patient values are? I think the wonderful thing about the notion of animal sentience is that it's now so well accepted across fields is that it really does posit that animals are not just systems that we can manipulate and animals have a perspective and their life has value to them. There is something it is like to be a dog in that situation or a horse and so life matters for the animal and so therefore yeah I I think there's a lot of interesting thoughts you can have about how how can we, it's clearly an incredibly difficult question, how can you invite an animal or make an animal part of this debate about what the values are? How, how to which extent can animals, you know, can, you, can, can they give any form of informed consent? I mean, that's a very difficult question, isn't it? Yes, it is very difficult. I suppose the, the most obvious thing is that they can show dissent they can say, you know, I don't want to go into the veterinary practice. I don't want to have my annual injection. Um, but usually we just override that decision and say, no, come in, you're having it. Or facilitate that happening by giving sedation or whatever. So we, we tend to just overlook animal choice if we decide that it's in the animal's best interest to have that treatment even if they're clearly telling us that they don't want it because we think well that's just a sort of current desire not to have the treatment you know it's not based on any values of the animal 
it's just an immediate reaction to what's about to happen. So maybe we have to be a bit more clever about finding out what's going on in the animal's mind. Is that really the most important thing to the animal, not to be put through that unpleasant experience? So are you suggesting we look at what else the animal would like or dislike or want or not want and take that more holistic yeah. assessment? Well, you can think of situations um, where animals can consent to the extent that they know what's coming. You know, like the use of animals in laboratories, for example. So I've, I, I was reading some work where I was very interested that the animal would clearly, cognitively, um, you know, they'd been there so many times, they, they knew what was coming and they very clearly expressed they were not interested in, mm. in taking part in that process. Whereas I think it seems the problem with, with veterinary practices is, is that is, am I right in thinking that most often that's not the case? It seems that we would think the animals that don't, you know, there's a diagnosis or a possible solution or a series of, of acts or, or a process of healing or, or intervention that you could do and how do you explain to the animal that that's what's at stake? I suppose we accept that health is an objective good for the animal and therefore the health of the animal comes above everything else and if we're trying to either give preventative treatment that will keep that animal more healthy or give treatment to repair illness or injury we assume that's what the animal would want above everything else. Good health. In humans, we're starting to question that. <laughs> why, do, why do you think an animal would want? We don't know. You know I'm, I'm not saying they should or they shouldn't. I'm just saying we don't know. We don't know whether that is you know, the, the highest value that they have is, is health. Well, of course, health has an instrumental yeah. value. So healthy allows you to do stuff because you can move around and it stops you suffering. Obviously then questions of health allows you to continue living is then of course a whole nother question and whether we just say life has that same instrumental value yeah. of either suffering or enjoyment, or is there some innate wanting to live that possibly humans have that somehow goes above that instrumental value? Do you think that animal, I'd be interested to hear from, from people, do you think that, that animals have that, that value of wanting to live? As, as a very deep drive in a way, all, you know, not entirely independent of health, but, but as a value in itself. As a conscious value over and above a, let's say, a kind of quite evolutionarily, evolutionarily ingrained survival mechanism. Yeah, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? It's mean what you mean by conscious. I, I, when I, I wouldn't say I necessarily mean reflectively. You know that it's something the animal can sit in the corner and reflect on life, but I do. I would personally, my take on it would be as as part of being sentient is that it's like the philosopher Tom Reagan. You know, to be subject of a life really matters to an animal. That's why animals immediately sort of you know start fighting to preserve their life. So, do we all understand what sentient means? Is it I think therefore I am, or are we clear about what that definition is? I definitely don't think animals have the level of doubt or verbal reasoning um, to be honest, or non-human animals mm -hmm. that they part. Um, I'll put it, I think it's Webster or, uh, or some other sources, feelings that matter. So they've got some experiences, some perspective on the world that in some way has some value for those animals. David, would you agree with that? Yeah, those? I think I agree. I think, I think what that captures is quite is 
a fairly conservative but quite powerful as well um, definition. And so I think that just to go back, I think the with this regards to survival and wanting to survive, I think if we if we say that they don't have that that survival value, then if it's just a mechanism, then it may then we may be looking we may be actually relegating them more to the sort of automaton position. In that, if they don't have that, then what do they have? Because that's quite a basic thing to want is to survive. They may not need a reason for that. But there are non-sentient animals that also have a drive to survive. Yeah. And, and, and not just animals. Yeah. Well, the, so it's, it's, it's kind a, of tangling, uh, disentangling what, what matters, I suppose. Yeah. I just, it just sort of philosophically it might just take us back a step, which might be the right position. But if we're going to say that they have feelings that matter, then you almost think, why would the... Why would they matter if they if they don't if there isn't that survival? Just to put another spin on it. Can animals decide they don't want to live anymore? I think I think you do. I, I mean, I think you do see that sometimes. I think you see them. You see some animals that have just given up or look like they've just given up. That's a classic, isn't it? That's what comes to my mind as a non vet of of people in that pro final process of of just my animal. Mm. A day a lot I know have friends who said I you know I suddenly just really had a strong feeling it, it was enough mm. you know my animal didn't want to go on anymore so it seems but yeah so it seems to be possible at least according to the owners but again whether they're explicitly giving up on life or they're just giving up on eating interacting grooming yeah. all the behaviors that they would otherwise do and that would sustain life um, and that's yeah. to, we can see behaviourally they're giving up on life, whether they're entertaining yeah, they that concept that. Yeah. Um, is a harder mind-reading jump. Yeah, and I don't, I don't, it's not that obviously it's something of human friends who have not given up on life, but they would appear at the end of their lives as though, as though they had, you know, because that's exactly what you're saying, all that physiological part is, is gone, so... Yeah. It's a really difficult question. For me, I'd like to bring in another element of, about sentience, which is I don't think that cognition and emotion are clearly hugely important, but I think there's another element. It's, you know, it's agency. It's, it's, and it's, it can be a bit of a philosophical concept, but it is just to say that animals aren't just complex functional systems can, you know, consisting of evolutionarily fun functional components, but that there is such a thing as the animal's you know, making their lives their own in, in a and there's a lot of research supporting you know just that animals prefer to go and find their own food and search for their own food even if they can get it for free that animals want to control they they will spend a lot of time becoming you know, spontaneously exploring the environment animals go out proactively to relate to the world they don't just you know they're not just passively moved about by different factors in their system that's um, and so that doesn't necessarily have to involve high level cognitive reflection. So I, I, you know, I think it's possible that you can be an agent with and, and have emotions and, and it matters to you that you have control over your own life without necessarily much conscious awareness in that sense that we use that. So I, do you see what I mean? I think that might be really relevant here and that you can maybe, even if we don't know, whether and what an animal's explicit values are, there's a lot we could possibly do to 
to try and enhance this, the animal's sense of choice and awareness of what it knows and what it has learned and, and how we're related to it in this process. But I, but that, I think what you're describing is that sentience facilitates agency. Is that what you're suggesting? You're suggesting something. What, what, what exactly are you saying then? Um, that agency is a very, very key, key element of sentience. Okay, so non-sentient creatures can't have control over their own lives. Well, I personally would think, I think all animals are sentient and have agency. So... What, even a tapeworm? Uh, yeah. You think a tapeworm is sentient? Well, how, how low would you go? <laughs> <laughs> well, a tapeworm is, yeah, okay, fair enough, you know, but I mean, we, we can, there's always border cases, yeah. but I... I'm not somebody who believes that, yes, there's a cut-off point, you know, we have higher complex mammals, and then below that we have just passively driven, function, you know, functioning, sort of automatically functioning, that, that I do think. It's interesting, because if we're saying sentience is something about what it's like to be that animal, mm-hmm. you could argue there either is something that it's like, there either is that first-person perspective, or there isn't, which would suggest a cut-off point. We might epistemologically struggle to work out where that cut-off point is, but that would suggest there's a cut-off point. Agency, maybe this is just me, you could see being slightly more on a gradient on the degree of control or the degree of of, uh, self-directedness or however we characterise agency. But sentience in terms of first-person subjective experience seems more binary. But why couldn't there be something in its life to be a bumblebee? Or, you know, something there is like... It to be, yeah, well, whatever. Oh, I'm not disputing on bumblebees. Yeah. We can, yeah, debate where the, the line fits, whether it's tapeworms yeah. or bumblebees. Yeah. But it does suggest, and that's one of, one of the things that's quite nice about the idea of sentience, and actually maybe agency, is where one can say, to your point, it's more than just the form and function and the, the yes, system of the animal. Emotion. Suddenly something comes in, whether it's coming at some point in evolution in certain lines, or or whether it comes in developmentally, again, really tricky questions, but there's something more that both of those provide. I think it's, you know, your, your point about agency and animals choosing to choose, that's definitely something that's been shown, um, and that things like um, positive experiences are more pleasurable if, if the animal has actually been able to, to choose them. and. Um, it's something that we is a practical thing that we can remember as veterinary surgeons and owners um, when we're thinking about trying to offer opportunities for animals and thinking particularly about you know we're very focused often on pain and alleviating pain as as experienced by sentient creatures but we can also be thinking about the the other end as well and um, looking to promote positive experiences in, in in lots of ways which which many owners do but perhaps the veterinary side of it is less focused on that and there's still opportunities within you know quite a restrictive environment such as a hospital cage for offering opportunities for autonomy and choice which will um, improve the welfare of the animal. So if we'd start talking about welfare ethics and values how do these things interrelate or do they? I mean David you, you put values based uh, medicine with evidence is that kind of human-based values rather than animal values or because that was kind of one of your final slides in a way this concept of combining evidence-based medicine with, with values and I think you included welfare in those values 
Uh, and I'm just just wondering, you know, when we talk about values, do we have to predicate it by saying, well, these are animal values, these are human values imposed on animals? You know, we've got to be really careful here. Yeah, very much so. Um, values as, as conceived um, in the in the presentation were things that matter to that animal. So they they we described them in our linguistically as as we might experience them or we may understand them. We have to be aware that the animal's experience of those I suppose, may be very different, but in a way that doesn't matter because as long as you recognise that they, that this idea of sentience and they have feelings that matter and they have preferences and, and desires, wants, which may be different between individual animals, between the same species, they probably are likely to be a bit very different depending on their interaction with humans generally. So I think the the concept of it comes from what are we actually trying to do when we treat an animal that is ill? And so what is the what is the point of veterinary medicine? Why why do we do it? And so there's there's different kind of arguments for for why we treat disease in humans and in animals, but one of the most compelling arguments, I think, is this, uh, this we do it because we want the animals to feel better. And so that is in, that's instantly brings into this, that they have feelings that matter and we want to make those better. And so values in itself is a way of explicitly considering that in our interventions with them in a veterinary context. So is there a danger that we're just being anthropomorphic? Absolutely. Yeah. That's the basis of lots of things. That yeah. in, what, in what way? We're transposing what our value system onto an animal, even though we don't perhaps fully oh, understand. See, the, the fact that it's out, that we're having to do something valuating, what's in valuing here doesn't necessarily mean we're doing it anthropomorphically. That would be in some ways right and in some ways wrong. I guess the trick here, or what we're trying to say, or maybe I'm trying yeah. to speak for everyone, is that we're trying to value in ourselves what the animals value. So it's not anthropomorphic in that sense, it's Correct. a widening of that value valuation. So it's not just your own values that count, you're, you're capturing other people's values in your own value system. And there's a black hole which says, do we understand you know, the sentience of that animal so we can understand their values, isn't it? Is that where we are? So I mean, I'm, I'm keen to open up the conversation a little bit more and say, well, what markers have we got, what metrics have we got to try and have some sense of what that is, that value system, those feelings, that sentience. Uh, you guys are more qualified than I to talk about this, so I'm going to throw that into the pot and s just see what we can come up with. I don't know who wants to start. <laughs> well, I think that there are two things about about their sentience and their level of feelings and um, what feelings they may or may not prefer to have and um, that's animal welfare science essentially and that's you know got a long history and lots of different species and quite a lot of evidence building up now so I think we can turn to that quite readily for for kind of that element then there is a different thing about what what values the animal would have because if we're assuming that it's gonna like our value system, if we were undergoing a medical treatment, would would not just be solely about um, you know what immediate kind of feelings would I have? It would be about you'd be trading off length of life versus 
um, feelings. So if we teach a dolphin whatever, however many words they can teach them these days, is that a modality where we could understand a little bit more? Does that give us the, the communication link that would enable us to understand more about their feelings, their value systems, or not? It might, it, it might do. I mean, there's there's Coco the gorilla who's mm, been taught yeah, yeah. A, lot, a lot of words, including some emotional words. I, I think, uh, this is very ambitious, but I actually think that in, let's say, the next 50 years, we will be able to have self-reporting for quite a, a, a large range of mm, animals. Yeah. So at the moment, we've got no validation mechanism, and in theory, you can never really get that validation, but we accept it in humans. So, but now with 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 increasing things like fMRI and, yep. and so on I think we, we potentially will be able to actually really see whether what Coco says is is kind of valid and consistent and all of, all of those things but anyway that's just possibly a slight aside because she still would need to have an understanding if, if we're talking about her values do I want this treatment or not she will be able to say it's painful I, I don't I'm frightened all of these types of things but but what we don't really know is whether she would be able to understand if you have this treatment, you will live another five years. If you don't have it, you will live this length of time. And so there are other elements which come into play. And people choose really differently. Those, you know, in, in the medical, human medical context, you have the same evidence presented to a range of people with the same condition, and they, they choose something, um, you know, potentially really different. But they're allowed to do that. They're allowed to choose things that aren't in their best interests. Whereas with animals, we try and make sure that we're not doing anything that's contra their welfare. Otherwise, we, we could be uh, reported. Yes, exactly. Mm. So there's legal sanctions if, mm. if we did things like that. So with humans, with human patients, autonomy is everything. Yeah. So you can choose something that is going to kill you. <laughs> Depending if you want, <laughs> yeah. or perhaps you know, refusing treatment that's going to save your life is probably more, more usual. And because patient autonomy is is prime, then you're allowed to do that as a human being with maximum autonomy. You're allowed to do that in our healthcare system. But with animals, we would have to step in if there was a chance that that animal was going to be harmed by the treatment. But I agree, I agree with, with Siobhan. I think also what's happening, which is great in, in many ways in, in animal welfare science, is opening up our space to listen to what animals either have to say literally or express, you know, through... You know, there, there's a lot of... If you live with animals, you know, you, you pick up things and you can make mistakes, but, but at the same time, you, I think in that relationality, in that mutuality of, of, of getting to know animals, there's a lot of clues and of expressivity that is real and that it comes from the animal. The question is how to listen properly. And, and, uh, and I think, yeah, giving space and, and trying to communicate with animals in, 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 through different techniques. Because the problem is the cognitive element, isn't it? How do we know that they really understand what's at stake? And, yeah, I, I think that's very difficult. But so, can we use behavioural traits? Can can we use behaviour as a as a metric in this space? We can certainly use it as a, some data 
to use, whether we can use it as a metric mm -hmm. is probably a different mm -hmm. question yeah, in terms yeah. of how you quantify yeah. data, but certainly part of our assessment would be based on the behaviour of the animal, part of it on the context of the animal. Now, look around the room to wiser people than I on that. Yeah, I mean, the, the profession does a lot of this stuff all the time. So there's a certain amount of tacit knowledge that people build up as veterinary researchers, whether that's right or whether, it's, whether it isn't. We do it all the time. How do you, how do you judge whether something is out of pain where it's not limping anymore? So whether it, the mental aspects of that may be there, but our kind of ability to judge these things may already be present. It may be that we have to try and, you know, divide these things out and look at them a bit more closely. But the, that kind of understanding of what an animal's appearance, demeanour, behaviour shows us, we, we may already, we, they may, may already be present. And I think it's there on farm and in the consulting room. Interestingly, I think we're still catching up in veterinary with EG Animal Welfare Science of explicitly thinking about what matters to the animal in our veterinary research. So quite often we're trying to take some generic evidence about pathophysiological processes, apply them to individual animals where we're making that actually more empathetic assessment. So and can we measure happiness in animals? Can we measure depression? Is that part of the mix? I mean, certainly physical limping and all the rest of it, I get it. Um, certainly, I mean, my, my field is dairy cows and I think I can tell you the cow's not feeling well, by its demeanour and its stature. Yeah, I, th I think we can make informed judgments. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with David. It's, it's, a lot of that is tacit knowledge, and one of the things that has been the purpose of QBA is to give it a formal basis, you know, yeah. to, to bring the validity of that, of that sort of looking at the whole expressive animal and yeah. the subtlety yeah. of it, that there's so much information there that... Yeah, I, I talk a lot to farmers about the qualitative difference between a, a, a relaxed, you know, just a, a lying, a, an animal just lying and being content and relaxed and an animal that's apathetic and depressed. Physically, it's almost the same, but the expressivity of it is so different. Mm. And, and it's a skill, I think, schooling ourselves, you know, in, in, and making it explicit of, of how we can address that level of what the animal is giving us is... Yeah, it can be a really important part of, of building an evidence base. But I think you've touched on an important point there, Francois. I think you've you've brought in the, the carer of the animal um, as being a really important cog in this in this wheel. The person who's spending more time with the animal than the vet does is the person we perhaps should be relying on to report on the animal's emotional state. And maybe we need to develop tools to help pet owners and farmers to to actually understand more what the animal is feeling rather than just you know what they objectively think about its health status i know that started in farm in yeah i know i, I think that's uh, in, on all levels that's really important and because particularly you know with companion animals you can't as an owner you can make mis make mistakes you know you can absolutely so one question i have is if, if we talk about evidence based decision making should does that mean surely then it's a question that we we should also explicitly talk about where the values come in as the evidence like I, an example that um, that appeals to me is is when an animal's really sick 
and and it's it's in pain and I, I I know people have said well you know he just felt it was the right thing to do to euthanize it and and I was not sure I you know for me that's not necessarily obvious I I think maybe the animal could still you know would rather do the dying on under his own agency perhaps you know and 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 be so it's not the pain that leads to the conclusion it's it's the skill of looking at the whole animal and judging where that animal is with that symptom and that situation and and that i think is yeah i i you know i'm, I'm not saying i could do it. it i think it's possible but i think it's very difficult but a great thing to to aim for and in fact it's even more complicated as well as trying to make that overall assessment of the animal you're trying to predict over time across a number of different treatment options what are the likely prognoses to peter's point that we struggle to have, deal with probabilities as well as the mind reading of that animal we're, we're faced with two very problematic tests for us. I think that's really interesting that that whole idea because I mean, there's one argument isn't it that, that evidence-based medicine is, is irrelevant to the individual because you might be the one in a thousand who, who um, you know has some particular outcome and, and so kind of how, how to make that useful for, for our individual patients and the owners who are, who are trying to make decisions. And again, in, you know, we know from people that they respond to this type of evidence really differently. So some people obviously want this and they, they really try and grapple with these various risks and so on. And other people just like, I don't want to know. I, this is irrelevant to me. I I'm, I'm already have this value that I want to do whatever it is. And, and that's that. So, yeah. So you might also be the one in a thousand people who want a particular outcome. Again, if we're trying to look what animals generically want and we've got yes. that variation actually we can't assume they would that this chicken would want what the other chickens appear to want and, that, and that's brought out in welfare science mm -hmm. tests that people are the animals are consistent but often consistently different to their to their neighbors or so how do patient values then feed into the decision making you know the human evidence-based medicine like integrated with patient values so we get that and David makes a point at the end of his paper, values-based medicine with evidence. And I'm, I'm still interested, whether, can we articulate what that looks like? How, how, how do we embrace the patient values? If, if we're still struggling to define them, to measure them, to communicate, okay. what, what does that look like? I would say you, you separate out evidence-based medicine and what I would call shared decision-making. And then the veterinary professional comes in with the evidence and says, okay, this is all the evidence about the possible treatments. And the person who's caring for the animal tries to give an idea of what that animal's values are or what they, what they would see as their values for that animal, which, okay, is, is not what we're really looking for. But that's where I say we need to perhaps work more with owners to get them to realise what is important to their individual animal or their collection of animals so that they can come along and say, oh, well, this particular animal likes doing this but doesn't like doing that, and therefore that form of treatment wouldn't be very good for this particular animal. So getting the owners better at interpreting what's going on with the animal. And then the shared decision-making works with the veterinary evidence and the values reported by the owner. 
so it becomes the best decision for that individual animal. That's my vision of it anyway. So on, on one hand, and this is just a question to, to help me, I think you started by saying the owners are going to be well placed to assess their animals' values, and then talked about how we need to help owners assess those values. So there's, there's yeah. a The owners are well placed in that they spend more time with the animals, okay. but perhaps need a bit more help to actually work out how they interpret the animal's behaviour, etc., to try and come up with an idea of what that animal's values are. So supposing we have an animal, somehow we can communicate, it says, no, I don't want to be put to sleep. And the owner, this lovely old lady, says, I can't, I can't cope with this really. So in other words, I'm building that tension yeah, of at, who, you know. At some point it's going to come down to, can the owner cope as well? Because that's obviously, unless you then talk about rewarming the animal, it's going to be that owner that's going to be responsible mm. for caregiving so it's got to work for them as well they've got to be able to give the care and if they can then that might make your decision for you i mean should we explain to an animal it's going to be put to sleep or should we simply put it to sleep so it it it, it has an end without knowing or premeditating it's going to be put to sleep you see, I'm, I'm trying to take this far out, which is probably getting into territory. So I think if animals were able to have the concepts that would allow us yeah. to ask our yeah. question, mm -hmm. then probably we would be talking about their consent in the same way mm -hmm. as we would about humans, in which case Correct. a similar principle would apply depending on yeah, your yeah. viewpoint and jurisdiction. Yeah. And I think there, there are some protections as well that we, we can think about of both the animal and for the veterinary surgeon. So the, you know, there are some boundaries with, with which it's, it's simply not legal to operate. You know, you can't leave an animal suffering. So I mean, no matter what, how, you know, how the owner wants it and so on. But, but equally, the veterinary surgeon doesn't have to do everything that the owner wants them to do. If, it's, if their values do not accord with the owner's values, um, they, you know, they, they, they are completely at liberty to, to say that and you know, to, to provide an alternative veterinary source um, of advice for the owner. And so each, each party has got some protection for it. David, I'd like to just return to you, because as I say, you did come out with this values-based medicine with evidence, um, which intrigued me and I was very interested in that. What you're hearing, is, is, is that your vision or Am I misinterpreting the values? Do you see that the values that's, that, that was in that final PowerPoint, values-based medicine with evidence? Describe to me what, what, what blueprint that was. Um, I think my conception of it was possibly less ambitious um, than, than what we've discussed so far in that I envision values as being fairly conservatively conceived in that animals have, have a basic set of values which are to an extent generic but also we can pick out individual preferences within those so in the human field that values-based medicine one area of, of thought is this area called modest foundations whereby every person has a a set of basic life needs uh, one being survival um, a lack of suffering and also an opportunity to flourish and so if we got if we transpose those to animals as in that's what they, they 
may want on a basic level, then we can integrate that into our interventions, veterinary interventions in them, so with them. And so what that, what that does is that it, it protects the individual against what potentially could be the overbearing nature of evidence-based medicine, this population, um, population data being forced onto an individual. But it also allows us to select for that individual. So one example I gave was a feral cat with a broken leg compared to an owned cat with a broken leg. Their values are probably going to be quite a bit different in their in the physical manifestation of them. They they both want if we allow that they both want to carry on living, and also that they want to not suffer, then their opportunities to flourish in that in that conception are quite different. So the Owned cat would be quite happy or happy enough being confined in a cage at home with some with a pin in its leg compared to a feral cat, to which that would put probably the seventh circle of hell being close to people whilst it recovers. And so I think the kind of basic conception of values means that we that we can we can actually adjust them and we can actually say what are the effects. What the what the feelings effects on these animals of the veterinary interventions, and we can explicitly state those. And then, what that does is it kind of sidelines the evidence based medicine part in that we, that's already part of our consideration in that okay we've got this data that tells us that we in certain percentage of animals then this intervention will do this, but it allows us then to actually say, well that's all very well, but we've got this individual in front of us, and so we need to adapt that. Into, into, into a form which is most suitable for that individual. But perhaps one thing we could do is just incorporate a wider, a wider sphere of evidence because, so as well as knowing something about fracture healing yeah. rates, we might know something about how feral cats respond to hospital environments or something. So yeah. we, we could just broaden our evidence-based veterinary medicine out to, to include things that perhaps kind of... Yeah. So what evidence we use should follow what we're valuing. What's needed. That yeah, dictates, yeah. and I think, and then maybe that's the problem then with the, some of the veterinary science that's only focusing on charitable point health issues is implying we only care about health issues, which I don't think is true, but if that's what you're measuring, that's what it suggests. Yeah, so it, it may be that we can adapt evidence-based medicine to include these kind of softer, if you like, outcome measures which are, are fairly prominent in the human sphere now where you, they talk about PROMS, which are patient-reported outcome measures, which are at one, at one point distinct, but also very different to if you're measuring a surrogate outcome of a marker of cancer, say, and what the patient's experience of that treatment is very different. And so when we're talking about fractures, for instance, that with all the papers talk about is either radiographic union or functional union. That doesn't tell us anything at all, apart from that was probably then out of pain, relatively. Um, but that we don't have those measures. And yeah, I think there's three papers that exist that have any sort of quality of life outcome measure. And they're, um, they're to do with exercise tolerance and breathing rate and other things and how well animals sleep. But they're starting to come through. There are other ones which are out there which are non-validated. But... I think this kind of one of the I agree that if 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 evidence based medicine is to be useful in that in that way, then it should turn its attention to 
looking at what outcome measures we currently use because I think that at, at the moment they decentralise the individual from any intervention that we choose to proceed with. So evidence-based veterinary medicine, if you look at it in the raw, I mean, it's simply looking at the primary literature, perhaps a little bit beyond, and it's saying what is the evidence across a certain information. One of its key values is that you discover what isn't there. If you ask the right question, and some of the questions that are being asked here um, are, you know, if you do a search, uh, is there anything in the literature, you know, how, how good or bad are those experimental designs, what level of evidence do they provide, um, what, what, what measure uh, does it provide you with. So I think you've got to be careful when you talk about open space medicine, dismissing that we're, we're small uh, science, we don't have a depth of literature. That is true, but it doesn't mitigate the fact we shouldn't look for the evidence to see if it's there, because we've got an opportunity to do bottom-up based research where we identify key elements. We've talked about some this afternoon, where I suspect if we did look in the literature, there would be very little there. And therefore, we need to lobby um, as a profession to identify where um, some of that research money um, is best targeted, would be my feeling. Yeah. Um, it's, it, is a, it is the classic response to evidence-based medicine is we just need more evidence, where I think it's more subtle than that. We need better evidence, we need better targeted for our patients. So what that means for my conception is we look again at the pyramid of evidence, we're not going to get RCTs for animals. Their value epistemologically is very, very low because they answer one single question. Why our patients are naturally not going to, the compliance side of things is going to probably be worse than if, than if you're a human patient. So I think that the question, the question is not, the, the easy response is we need more evidence. So I, I think that that is a it's a it's a too simplistic answer. We you see it in the human field as well. We just need more evidence, and there's this kind of belief that because we're looking at science, we'll be able to answer all the questions eventually. Um, in terms of plausibility, that's not going to happen. So you know, in what we need to look at is what evidence do we have, and what quality is it, and how can we in the future make that evidence more applicable to you know, in the human side of things, very different because that most people are specialists, whereas in the veterinary side of things, 97% of people are in first opinion practice of practicing vets. And so our profession itself is much different. And so there's no point in producing papers on TPLOs in dogs, because all that, all that tells you is that surgeons, it's basically in order of that surgeon's outcomes. That's not, I, I can't then go out and use that as a, as if it's an operation because of various different factors. So. The quality of the evidence that we're getting is not it's not as simple as saying we just need better evidence of higher in the pyramid because it doesn't help it it, it, it actually divests quality from the from the profession. We've got to be careful here not to confuse the triangle, which is the triangle is about conventional experimental design and that the uh, if you go up the triangle there's less bias, there is uh, more control of variation. In other words, those experiments have much higher power to discriminate between two uh, different groups, if you like. We're also looking at qualitative information as well, qualitative research. So I think we've got to be careful not to compare like with like. You know, if you and I were comparing, for instance, uh, two different antibiotics to treat a certain condition, then I'd be very interested in a randomised controlled trial that's got the right number of uh, animals in each group that's blinded, that's well controlled, 
um, and that evidence would be uh, very strong in terms of the outcomes that provides. Uh, it is not the best design for other things that you're beginning to allude to, and I completely agree with that. And I think most scientists would also agree that um, if you're looking at different types of information, you need a different types of design. So we have to qualify what that triangle represents um, and what type of research it tends to be quantitative. Mm -hmm. um, but but I, I fully concur. Um, I, I think there is a strong emphasis in quantitative research as opposed to qualitative research. Um, and uh, it, it, is, it, is, it is still science-based, it's still evidence-based, um, but, but you're quite right to, to redirect that effort, I think. Yeah. Correct. And also remembering that, that evidence-based medicine certainly has, has kind of got its detractors. It comes already with a kind of ethical set of values. There are whole groups of people, which presumably also equate to our animals that are marginalised, that aren't included in these trials and so on. And so it's, it's not necessarily the, the kind of panacea that... Uh, although it is incredibly seductive. My, my argument would be this, and I completely agree. I've been through these arguments the last 10 years, and I, I, I agree with you all, but is it better to have this concept and this process called evidence-based veterinary medicine where we look at the literature, we critically appraise it, and we try and come up with what is the best evidence and the quality of that evidence to deliver a certain information need? If I can't find it, then it opens uh, a, a problem area in terms of what do I do? And that is a completely separate question, which is why I, I prefer to kind of constrain evidence-based veterinary to a fairly limited box, um, which is one of my opening comments. But I think the, interest, the really interesting thing about our discussion here is, is that, that combination between and going back and forth between values and evidence, because I think what we've been trying to say, and I really agree with that, is that you, you need to identify the question. And then the evidence will emerge. You know, the, that evidence that you might want is 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 not visible until you know how to ask the questions. And those, I think, the concept of sentience you know, opens in its, all its generality and all the but it, and there's other concepts as well, consciousness or 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 um, you know, is is they it opens up a, a domain for asking new questions that we don't even know what sort of evidence it it'll produce. And I think that's very exciting and, and very necessary. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that to some extent that's what you were asking us to do, is to identify, to say, well, what are we actually trying to, to, to get at here, aren't we? And is that is something you, you, you state, it seems to me, you know, there's always an interaction between values and evidence. Yeah, yeah, I think the, it kind of turns, it turns the idea of medicine on its, on its head a little bit in that the the classic approach of EBM has been you have a patient, you go and find the evidence and you apply it to that patient. Whereas actually, in I think we've got a great opportunity in, in veterinary medicine, certainly, to, to not make the mistakes that human evidence-based medicine has made over the last 30 years. And we can actually say what we want is the individual patient to be best served by this evidence. So... As you say, we, we need to ask the right questions about what it, what it is they want, what we're we trying to achieve, rather than aping evidence-based medicine from the human field, which suffers from many, many detractors. Um, as Siobhan says, you know, the 26-year-old white male, that's what, that's what evidence-based human medicine tells us about. It doesn't necessarily tell us about other people, other people. And I think in, in animals, it's even, it's even more diverse because 
we've got different breeds, different species, and so we can't necessarily extrapolate it even across species or even between breeds of the same species. And so it's about reformulating this idea that best serves the individual. And one way of centralizing them in the decision making and saying, what do we want out of this intervention for the individual? And coming at it from that way, and then using evidence based the, the good parts of evidence based medicine, as Peter says, is the is this sort of research li- literacy, I suppose, this ability to go and find the evidence and find out what it's telling you. Now, if you ever sat down and tried to look at go through that, <laughs> I've just done it for my thesis for um, for the community's humoral practice in cats and it took 10 days of solid work to go and find evidence, appraise it and then try and apply it. And so we also need to look at how usable this whole thing is. It's a good segue into promoting the veterinary <laughs> evidence journal. <laughs> so yeah, so the, the, this kind of transfer of knowledge and everything else, but we, we've got a real opportunity here to, to be able to, to use it um, for the for the purpose for which it was originally intended, I think, but not by following what the humans, um, human field have done. Um, and this, this idea of values comes from, how, you know, as I say, how can we best treat the individual, which is what medicine event is the, is the last point of the common pathway of any interventions. Okay, um, I'd like to draw it to a close. Now I'm just going to give everybody an opportunity to do a parting comment. Perhaps you may wish to say nothing, that's, that's fine, but if it's kind of any other business part of the meeting in a sense, that if we haven't missed, stepped over something, or you want to do some signposting for the future on the basis of what we've talked about, um, I think it might be interesting just to go around and have a sort of parting comment. James? Well, so as a parting comment, I guess, just to pull the ideas together, we're talking about what animals seek value, and we try and perceive that, and we're also to have that. We go from what animals value to what we as clinicians value. That, plus questions of population, quality of science, tells us what data we, we need to make those decisions. And that data should dictate what studies are done. What isn't necessarily happening is all of those steps. So I think the next question is, how do we get that articulation from what animals want to what clinicians want to what studies should be done? I think that's the next question, having got there. Thanks, James. Carol? Uh, One of the ways that evidence-based medicine is trying to change is trying to come up with questions that patients ask rather than, you know, questions that clinicians Mm. ask. Maybe we should start thinking about the questions that clients ask rather than the questions that vets ask. Yep, that point's been made before. Thanks, Carol. Siobhan? Yeah, that's nice. I mean, I think, um, you know, we were thinking about this in the context of what if the dog could speak. I think we know some of the answers, you know, there there are some pretty uncontroversial things around being free from pain and, and so on. But um, we don't really know how to set that in a in a context of, of kind of wider values that humans might have, um, and I, I think we're at the point now where we can start to think um, about opportunities to try and allow them to speak a bit more because there there are still more things that they could tell us about I and mean, even just you know self administering analgesics for example um, you know that's a, and autonomy within within their home and and hospital environment so. Let's ask them and see what they say. David? Uh, yes. Yeah, so Would you change your article in any way? I was 
sort of my party thing is that I think when we look at veterinary interventions, is that there is there, there's a there's a there's a fundamental ethical kind of uneasiness at the centre of them in that in any interaction in a veterinary sphere that we have with an animal, there will be a degree of suffering or displeasure or anything. And so what we have to make sure is that any intervention that we do, because we're all already in, the, in, in kind of a negative balance, any intervention that we do has to be justifiable and also for the benefit of that, of that, animal, that animal. And I think what values can do is help us to both, it can be used epistemically so we can actually judge how how well we have done by the, the improvement in their feelings and their and their, their general kind of happiness if you like um but also but it, it still has a place for this for evidence-based medicine by telling us what what possibly or showing us or the, the, the data can suggest what is the best um, way of going about this intervention so i think the two can coexist to the benefit of the individual animal but we just need to change our focus quite significantly francois yeah, just um, to pick up um, maybe on, on well, what everybody said, but also Carol and Siobhan particularly, that I think rec in, in recently what I've seen happening is, is a, a, a growing interest also in human-animal communication, not just how is the animal expressing itself, but how are the owners and or, or other humans, you know, the subtlety of, of that exchange. And I think it's great that we're in our field are sort of losing our paranoid fear about anthropomorphism a bit and therefore willing to to look at it in more detail and and, and trust it more and and um, i think that's just beginning and and this would be a really interesting with a lot of new methods and new tools really interesting area to look what is exchanged actually what is being talked about how does it actually work it's bizarre but how we still you know there's a lot to learn i think Okay, thanks very much everybody. Um, I just want to make listeners aware that uh, David's presentation, Putting the Horse Before the Cart, Ethical Case for Animal Patient Values and Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine, um, is available on the Royal College uh, website, so you can listen to that, and David's very kindly made his PowerPoint presentation also available. Um, if you have any feedbacks or questions or thoughts of your own, you can tweet us on at rcvsknowledge, or you'd like to join one of our future panels uh, thanks very much for listening. We hope you found this uh, interesting and uh, thought-provoking. For more podcasts from RCBS Knowledge, find us on iTunes, Podbean, or go to our website at rcbsknowledge.org.